So, uh, so we're, we're continuing Ephesians. We're going to cover Ephesians through the rest of this summer, and then we'll end, I think, the first week of September, and then we'll switch things up as we launch into the fall, the second week of September, and everything else launches. All the ministries kind of come back into full effect um, after the summer scatter. Thanks for you all for being here. This is like traditionally July, the weekend before July 4th is like the least attended Sunday, one of the least attended Sundays, but you all made it. You are the tried and true. You all made it. So welcome. It's good to have you all here. Um, So we'll continue in Ephesians, and if you're out of town, please just follow along by reading in the scriptures and taking a look and asking the Holy Spirit what he might do um, and tell you through it. But what we've been doing is we've seen Paul create a building effect over last week to this week, in addition to some of the other things that we've done. And so if last week he appealed to us as human beings, um, even individuals, though it wasn't an individualist society, so that might be a stretch, but to some extent, you are a new kind of human being now. And what he's going to do is now take that <laughs> and collect you all together. As he said, you were once dead in your trespasses, but God has raised you to life. Not just good people, uh, bad people made good, but dead people made alive. And now in life, he's given you this access to a new purpose, new tasks, um, a host of good works that were built, that you were built to walk in before you were even born. So collectively, what he's going to do is bring us now as individuals to a new kind of family. And if so, so last week was a new person, a new human. This week is a new kind of family. Um, And this is super near and dear to what we are as a church when it comes to reconciliation ministry. Um, I was, okay, so I was in third grade the first time I ever encountered um, a situation where somebody had been through a divorce, but then was um, on the other side of that, had met somebody, and now was remarrying um, a, a new person that they had found. And both um, of these two families had children previous, bringing these children into um, this new marriage. So at that time, um, I was, we were living with one of those families. Um, my, my family was living with one of those families. So I got this firsthand look of all of the ins and outs, good, bad, and ugly that was taking place in the midst of this. And the kids who were our age had to navigate, right, this first meeting together, his kids and her kids for the very first time meeting each other. The parents met, they got along obviously, right, they liked each other, that's why this was even happening, but the kids weren't so sure. They're meeting each other for the first time and trying to figure out what that might look like. I don't know if we have anything in common, right? I don't know if I even like these people. Don't know if there is going, this, is, this whole thing is going to work out, but it was happening and it all had to be figured out to some extent. Family looks different now because there are more people to consider in the midst of that and new opinions to take into account. One of the families moved into the other family's old house, so they had to make room in a house that was previously claimed in certain ways, right? When you live in a house, you kind of, this is my favorite spot, this is my room, those places are other people, that I like. this is where I like to keep my cheese in the refrigerator, this is where I like to keep different things, right? And now you have new people with new past traditions, new family kind of norms. Parents had to figure out what discipline would look like, if and how to discipline the kids from the other marriage, right? Celebrations, holiday traditions were all flipped around, had to be negotiated because this was two families coming together, blending to be one. And all of this was happening as they dealt with the collapse of everything that they knew as foundational before. So there's loss in the midst of it too. What was familiar, what was created as a foundation for what they knew as, as life and family was, was being changed. So in addition to some of the new discoveries, you have strife and fighting, blaming. There's a chasm 
of differences that they're overcoming together. And it honestly would have been easier if they had just had two separate households, right? You live over here, and half of the time we'll hang out, and then you live over here, and that's how we're going to do this. But when you put people like that together, sparks are going to fly, and an infusion has to take place. But look, eventually, it did, it did get figured out. Eventually, things settled. Eventually, they worked through the differences. The two became one together, um, and, and peace was established. This new normal was created, and there was a new blended family. Now, I could have used different metaphors for what we're talking about today, but I feel like that best captured it, and I saw it right in front of me as it was happening. And the point is this, bringing two households together is an entirely too difficult task for people to accomplish. Like there's a need and a stressing for that to be placed on something bigger than just us. Now, enough time and enough things figured out, you, you may have um, some more difficulties along the way, but peace was established. And as we're looking at these things, I'm sure, and, and let me say this, probably some of you have either been through this firsthand or seen it from afar, right? You've seen this take place um, and you know how incredibly messy it can be. And this, this, is a, this kind of metaphor, this depiction is what I want us to bring into as we read what Paul is trying to do between these two different households. And that doesn't take into consideration that you have ethnic divides, you have, um, uh, uh, like, what, what would you call it, like, um, there's history, though there's beef, man, just straight up, there's beef between these two. This isn't just neutral parties coming together. These are people that have a problem with each other, a rivalry, that would be a better, there you go, a rivalry for, uh, for centuries and so as Ephesus is, is being, this church at Ephesus is being established, Paul is acting like an arbiter for Jesus who is the one creating peace in the midst of these two households while they're blending, while they're merging, not because of a remarriage, but because of a brand new covenant relationship that is being built out of these two groups. It's a new kind of family. Now, one of the things I have to, we as a group have to overcome as we think about this is that if I were to just say, Jesus is your peace, like you're all good church people, you know, amen, right? Like, yeah, hallelujah, that's right, Jesus is our peace. But we never stop to think about what that even means. And, 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 and as Jesus is being proclaimed in these scriptures that we're reading today, who brings this unlikely people together, we gloss over the reality or run to the conclusion way too quickly, like, all right, all right, I get it, I get it. Jesus is our peace, we're all one family now. But if you don't stop and address the mess and live in the uncomfortability of the previous, before the peace, before all of that was happening, then you can't really appreciate the work that was done to get all of that. Parents have to work hard in a situation like that. And in here, you have Paul working to be the arbiter on behalf of Jesus as he is trying to negotiate this world and blend these things together. So let's appreciate that. Let's see how great that chasm is, that separation, that antagonism between the two so that we can understand the harmony that is created when this comes under the peace of Christ. Now, before we jump in, there's a couple of things. Um, I'm done making jokes about the whiteboard. Just get over it. I'm a geek, and we're going to do this every once in a while. Cool? Um, I want to see some separation words that are going to happen, all right? So, and I'm going to try and do the best I can to do it quickly and kind of um, use some abbreviations. So we have the uncircumcised and then the circumcision. All right, that's a, a phrase that's going to be used today. We have what is separate and excluded. I'll just pick one of those. I'm using synonyms separate and then brought near. I hope I spelled that right. 
brought near. Then we have this word, aliens, foreigners, strangers. I'm going to use the shortest of them, aliens. And then on the other flip side of that, we have citizens. Then this will be, I think I have two more, hostility or enmity. I'm going to do hostility. And then the word that I wanted to make sure that we saw in here was peace. Uh, And then there was one more that I caught even just this morning as I was rereading. In the flesh and in Christ. Okay, so these are going to be just casually peppering the verses that we talk about today. But what you need to see is that um, as Paul is doing it, he really wants you to understand we've got one group that's over here and one group that's over here. And there is a distance between these two in understanding each other in traditions and backgrounds. And I'll stop there because we'll get into it here in more detail. Pay attention though. All right, when he uses this language and how it plays into the overall message. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are, what is the word? Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Now, notice the power dynamic that's taking place there. The term uncircumcision is being used in a pejorative, in a negative way by those who call themselves, you see how it's it's actually the, like a definite article in front of it, we are the circumcised, it's a title, it's an identity. And, And you are the ones who are not a part of that identity. So they're using it very specifically, and I want you to see that, that there is a, um, a moment where Paul, it's in parentheses, I think in your scriptures, in most of the translations, which is done in the body by human hands. He's diminishing, lowering in status this identity statement. Now, he wants to make sure that he diminishes its power by saying it's not heavenly, it is merely established by rituals performed through human doing. So he's lowering that. Now, what we need to note is that a bulk of the relational power here is in the hands of the Jewish people. And I I felt compelled that I needed to to mention this. This isn't quite built into the overall lesson. But um, Paul is wanting to help the Jews, at least in this moment, lower, get them, get off the high horse, okay? Um, But note that this scripture and these verses in general have been used for anti-Semitism for years and years and decades and probably centuries. Do not let that be true of us. That is doctrine of demons. It is evil, all right? But there are power distinctions at play, and he's going to come back to the other side of that in just a minute. But just know what we're doing here is we're watching Paul open this up by addressing those in power and asking them to drop down because he's going to go to the other side in just a second. Paul is trying to make sure that the Jews in this context are appropriately making room for others while reminding the Gentiles of their former state. And so verse 12 tells us this. Sorry, I lost my place. Oh, there we go. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, and he's talking now to the Gentiles, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not just brought near, but brought near by what? The 
blood of Christ. Now again, we hear this language nowadays and it's pretty normative. Paul is meaning something very specific. Why would all of this need blood in order to create peace in the midst of it? Well, Paul is now on this side of the family. He wants them to understand what they have been brought into and the good news that that will be to them because truly this is actually their reality. Uncircumcised, separate aliens, they were... Hostility, <laughs> I forgot my own abbreviation. And they were operating in the flesh. I just hosted, I don't know, it had a whole other word attached to it. So, so as we use this flippantly, Paul is wanting to create, uh, um, again, he is socially saturated by Old Testament understanding. And for those of us in here, I mean, how many of you have made a, an animal sacrifice in the last year? Aren't you reading your Old Testament? No, none of us, I hope. I hope. Could get real weird real quick. But what's going on in here is he is very used to this. And when he uses that term blood, that's specific to what he's referencing. All right. Paul is choosing his words carefully. Verse 14 goes on. It says this, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. What barrier? And it says this, the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, uh, I think a better translated word is the enmity because it's stronger. So he's our peace, but he destroyed a barrier, this dividing wall. So as we read this today, we think of the dividing wall of hostility as a metaphor. And it is. It is a metaphor. But the metaphor likely draws on a very specific reference to an actual physical barrier wall that stood in the court of the temple of Jerusalem. I'm going to show you a picture of the temple. So look at this, this, um, this temple. Uh, what we have here is, so we're in Jerusalem. This is the main temple that would have been uh, where people went for pilgrimages, high holidays, etc. You see that kind of, it looks like almost maroon um, rooftop to the left there with the long roof. That would have been um, where money changers were hanging out. That's where um, they would have been selling sacrifices. Also, on, as an aside, where Jesus flipped some tables and got a little wild in there. Okay, then as you enter in that, that larger space, both on the left and the right, that's the court of the Gentiles. So the structure at the very center is the main temple building where the sacrifices were made. Only males could go into that smaller box right in front of it. Actually, that was the, the court of, of women. So women and men could go there. But then as you go up the steps, you would see kind of that wall that's separating the taller building in the center. I don't have like a pointer, but I think you all can kind of see the reference. So they would take the sacrifice, escort it, sacrifice it on behalf of um, whatever male brought that in. The larger outer um, area, though, is what I want us to focus on called the court of Gentiles, where anybody could roam about. Um, people were invited to be a part. This is like where you could go if you were just there to see what was going on in this giant temple. Um, but there was this wall that contoured the outside of the main temple in the center. Now you can, it's hard to see, but if you look at the, um, that wall on the inside, just to the left, there's kind of like a faint line that, that goes down the left-hand side. Do y'all kind of see what I'm looking at? Just right on that little left edge. And you can see the tiniest bit of the same wall on the other side of that. This wall um, was known as a barrier wall. 
It was called a balustrade. It was like about thigh high, very ornate, um, had kind of a, 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 like the way it was built was meant to cause people to see it as something beautiful, but also aesthetically, what would be on it were a few of these. There's a little tablet picture. So this is one of two pieces of these tablets that we have access to. It got dug up out of the rubble of what was formerly the temple in Jerusalem. It's been through a few different ups and downs in its time. There were some in Latin. There were some in Greek. Um, and, and this is one of the few that we have. It was dug up by the Palestine Exploration Fund in, in 1872. Um, so, so there were 13 of these all along the balustrade, so that as a Gentile, you'd be wandering around, hanging out, but when you saw this, you saw in Greek or Latin what is written up there. Now, now I want you to see this, because I thought it was really cool. Not just interesting, but it really um, confirms this. We know that these existed. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus. He's fairly well known, and he wrote this in one of his writings. There was a partition made of stone. Its construction was very elegant. It's a balustrade. Upon it stood pillars, and at equal distances from each other, they declared the law of purity, some in Greek and some in Roman letters. I want to make sure all of the Gentiles knew that no foreigner should go within the sanctuary. So that's just a sample. This is it. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade, round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his ensuing death. Do not trespass. Prosecutors or perpetrators will be shot. I mean, it's not that different, right? It's not very welcoming. Anyone want to jump in and partake in whatever's going on on the other side of that? Who knows if there were guards on the other side? Who knows how they were going to enforce this? But it, it, it quite literally is one of those... Um, one of those signs with like, you know, a picture of some sort of weapon saying, do not enter, right? I, I'm not calling the police. You're going to get taken care of right here. Okay, so in the midst of this, you see this literal wall called the dividing wall. And not only that, but, but it, it does have a metaphoric reference to all of these different things saying, you know, if you're a Gentile, if you are, they would use the term pagan. I know that doesn't sound as nice today um, as, as um, they would use it then, but it, but it was a specific term being used. Um, they would say to any other nation, you don't belong here. You can't come and approach the Lord Yahweh. Centuries of animosity is being represented in this wall. Wars and bloodshed, mistreatment, and abuse. And what I mean is usually the Jews are being mistreated and abused. So there's a protective agency here. The two groups have pledged allegiance to two different deities and they live in separate worlds. And so this is a representation that you don't get to come into our most holy of places. There's differences in religious practices that God himself put in place. Centuries of meticulous obedience on one side from the Jews. Obedience, religious adherence to this law and on the other side, centuries of not practicing the law don't even know about it. You've heard bits and pieces, but you haven't been practicing it for your entire life, memorizing the law. So we see Paul is using this language about a temple. He's using language about a sacrifice, and it makes sense then that he would use the phrase, in Christ Jesus, who once was far, uh, you were once far away, but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
So Jesus, who is this perfect temple sacrifice, accomplishes more than any normal sacrifice could ever have accomplished before because he is bringing together things that have never been brought together until this point. So keep this in mind as Paul continues. I'm going to read, picking up in verse 14, it says this. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Literal and physical, metaphoric and representing years of animosity, centuries. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So if you're a Jewish person, you're like, wait, hold up. That's not how this is supposed to go. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself, not flesh, but in himself, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Well, why did they need peace? And if you're a Jewish person reading, it's like, well, I, I don't, they, need, they need the thing. What do you mean me? For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So Paul is drawing on this temple imagery to illustrate the power of all that Christ has done and all of the reconciling power that he was able to create by bringing these two groups into one body. Do you see what Paul is doing in this? The laws that separate the Jew and Gentile are nullified. Catch that they are not completely erased. They have been fulfilled in Christ, making a new people. Okay, so this covenant of promise was established. They aren't destroyed, set aside, because Christ has completed. And as a result, Paul does not ask the Jewish believers to cease to circumcise their sons or forego Sabbath rest or any other one of the laws, eating kosher. He doesn't say they have to stop. These practices, but, but while still able to be practiced, become more so a beneficial cultural custom to celebrate God's goodness, but not an essential for Gentiles to come into the fold or to belong within the community, okay? So I'm answering it like, I know you all are going to have that question, so let me deal with that. It's fulfilled, all right? Don't, don't add extra burdens, but continue to practice what you feel convicted to practice as a Jewish person. And did you catch that both needed to be moving in each other's direction? He didn't just address the Gentiles. This is a, a quote from Dr. Lynn Coick, one of the um, uh, uh, commentaries that I use, have been using for this series. It says this, in Paul's day, Gentile pagans were far from God and outside the community of faith. Their need for salvation was obvious. They knew they needed God. They've never known God before. At least to the Jew, such as Paul, what might have been less obvious is God's reconciliation of Jew and Gentile into one new body. Instead, the expectation was that the Gentiles would become Jews. No, that's fine. You can, you can, you can convert to Judaism. And Paul's like, mm, that's, not, that's not what we're doing either. You're both setting aside something. So up to this point, that's the expectation. And Paul is saying, I'm not creating Jewish converts out of Gentiles, and I'm not creating Gentiles who, uh, uh, or Jewish people who get to sit back and say, well, you can come in. But that brings a lot of questions into the Jewish imagination. So Paul is, in all of these things, accomplishing multiple 
um, multiple uh, clarifications to the Jewish imagination, but then making appropriate ways for the Gentiles to come in. So it says, if, if Paul is answering this question, that, so, so listen carefully, if Jews were God's chosen people and the Gentiles were not, and if Gentile Christians were not Jews and yet the elect of God, what are they? That's important for you and me. I think most of us in here are Gentiles. What are we? And so he is saying, I'm going to give you a few metaphors. I'm going to, I'm going to use the dividing wall. I'm going to talk about new bodies. I'm going to talk about a new household. I'm going to talk about a new family. And he's going to continue building on this temple thing. I'm going to show you what that means here in just a second. He is describing a single community. You're not becoming them. You're not becoming them. In fact, it's all erased. You're all just becoming something new. That is good news for us. Second, the temple imagery recalls um, parades of devotees worshiping something. Now, if you remember when we opened up, we know that there are parades of devoted people to the goddess of Artemis in Ephesus that would happen on a regular basis, if not daily, monthly, and if not monthly, there were annual ones that would take place, giant parades where people would go to Artemis' temple. And so he's bringing this to mind. At the same time, he's calling on Isaiah's description when Jews who were scattered throughout the land would come together on pilgrimage to the temple of God's people. That they're walking up this hill. This is called the Ascension. A good chunk of our Psalms are written so that they could just sing the Ascension Psalms on the way. So once again, you all have a parade of devotion and you all have a parade of devotion And I'm not telling you anything other than I want to paint this picture that now you are in a parade of devotion together, no matter where you started, near, like the Jews, or far, like the Gentiles. Once Christ becomes the center of your religious focus, you all arrive to Christ at the same time. What, Paul... Paul is, I mean, this is wild what he's creating in these few verses. I want you all to know that it doesn't matter. If you thought you could sit back, well, I mean, at least I was, I was in the, over here, in the family first, you know. It's like, no. You all didn't know Christ until Christ was here. And now that you're in Christ, you come to him at the same time. Those sacrifices were not going to get you any closer to me it still needed the final sacrifice. And third, Paul is showing them that neither could accomplish the fullness of what Christ had to do for them. Neither one could. You could provide a sacrifice, but it wasn't going to fulfill everything that Christ could have provided. Neither could come together. Only Christ's sacrificial bloodshed could bring that together. Peace had to be preached to both the Jew and the Gentile community. So he's leveling this playing field, making sure that we are creating a brand new family. Whatever ownership you thought you had of this household is now washed clean so that we could start this new family with a fresh, brand new placement. Nobody is a Above the other, equity has been established and it had to be done only through what Christ has done on the cross. Okay, we'll, we'll finish with this here. Paul is drawing this temple imagery, but um, it's not just for the reasons that I've told you. He's also going to den- then point them in a direction of something. Verse 19, consequently you, he's talking to the Gentiles, are no longer foreigners, 
and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation, well, what, what are we, we're, built, we're building now? Built, so Brent, check out new, new um, imagery, new metaphor. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the what? Cornerstone. So he opened up by alluding to this temple. Now he is literarily, I don't know how you want to say it, he is now building a metaphorical temple right before them from apostles and prophets. Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So he disassembled, deconstructed all of these things that they had before so that he could reconstruct a brand new temple right before their eyes. This is, this is like b- beautiful imagery. I wish I could write like this guy. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises up to become the holy temple, of the, uh, temple in the Lord, and then the last verse, and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. God no longer just brings these people. He lives within this new temple. That is you and me, them in their time, centuries between us and them, but now still is true. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a brand new family. (laughs) The barrier to non-Jews access is made available. These two ethnic groups, Jew and Gentile, become a new unified family that now lives in peace. So I could not, I I mean, I, I knew that it had some of this in it. I don't think I realized how closely related to our church and our focus for justice and reconciliation this book could have been. I had no clue. It reinforces our call to be a reconciling church that asks us, begs us, compels us to look at the barriers that exist in our current socio-ethnic context to fight and destroy inequitable power dynamics to create a level playing field so that all people can come into one family. How? I mean, what? So one of the things I want to do at the end here is pray that God would reinforce us. I've, I've asked us on numerous occasions not to grow weary in doing the good work because it's difficult work. But I pray that Paul adds energy to us. This also helps us to see all our need for Christ on a continuing basis. We couldn't have done this. Look, we don't have any, I've heard this so many times as we've had interviews with other churches that have come together and maybe merged with groups that have tried to interact with different ethnicities and try to become multicultural. You can't do this without the Holy Spirit. They say it all the time. It's like, yeah, I get it now. I, I know what you mean. No, what I'm saying is you can't strategize enough to figure this out. Okay, but let's try to figure out the strategy. No, no, I'm telling you, you can't strategize enough to figure this out. If the Holy Spirit isn't doing this, it's just simply impossible. And we have a few centuries in America that can prove that. All of us need Christ. All of us need God to help do this work. But check this out. Um, all are invited to surrender their lives to Christ and receive salvation. This is, this is difficult in our culture, right? Like, we, we like the inclusive parts of Christianity, but there still is a surrendering to him. It doesn't necessarily... Um, 
Without Jesus as that peace, not only can we not become this family, this household, we can't do this work, and we don't have the goodness within us, not none, but the enough to overcome living this life without Jesus. I'm going to read one more line from Lynn's commentary, uh, Dr. Lynn Kohik. In our age of pluralism, it's difficult to speak of conversion, of people being far from God and needing to be reconciled because it is deemed judgmental or intolerant. Pluralism, which seeks a unity of sorts by accepting others' religions to foster peace, is the right instinct but does not go far enough. The vision of unity that pluralism seeks can be attained only in Christ and his work on the cross. The reconciliation brings all people together into a new group where no single culture, no single language, or no single political identity is privileged over another. This is a unity of differences, not a union of sameness. That's bomb to some and not to all, right? How many of you have sat under calls for unity in the last few years that really meant conform to what I'm asking you to do? But at the same time, it's calling all of us to surrender under Christ. It's like, man, I don't don't like that, but this is where we find this new freedom. Here in this new body are all, where all are equally loved by the Father as members of the body and of the Son, and we get that choice. And so I don't mean to be like super old school and bring this down to an old-fashioned altar call, but that might be what's needed today. And I want to call us to all of these things, but also here, here and, I'm, and um, I, I don't want any manipulative device being a part of that, but I'm saying if you don't know Jesus and you want to know him, I would love to talk to you about that. All right, we are a new family. Whatever you thought about us as common ground, we are a part of this giant uh, 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 deconstruction, reconstruction, this new temple, this new blending of worlds. Equity has to be established. Power dynamics have to be recognized and dealt with in order for that to actually be true. So let's be about this work, but let's do so. Not trying to create kingdom. Uh, Kingdom works without the king, but with Christ as the center and enthroned as uh, the one who is at the center of our hearts. Amen? A new family. Let's pray together. So here, Lord, um, uh, if we don't trust other entities and other things, um, Father, help us to trust Christ. At least we can trust you, Jesus. No matter what representation of you has not um, borne correct witness. And so, Lord, I pray that as um, individuals, as new humans who were dead and now made alive, God, would you help us to surrender to you and who you are and do your good works? And Father, as a collective body, could we represent a new kind of family that is so compelling that others wouldn't help but want to be a part of it? So God, as you have destroyed the dividing wall, would you destroy the dividing wall of racism and help us to take that thing apart brick by brick if necessary? And we build on the cornerstone. Father, if there are walls of hostility between us and personally with others, maybe in this room, would you help us to remove that dividing wall? 
that we would be a unified people in this room. And Father, could we be commissioned as new temple people with the Holy Spirit living in us to do all of the good works that you have purposed in us before we ever knew it. May we be the workmanship, the poema, the, the, um, the, the, the art piece that you are creating that is the alternative to some of the ugliness that we've seen. And whatever is necessary to do that, God, we ask for this all right now, if we're willing to say amen. In the name of Christ Jesus and all God's people said, amen. 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 amen.